Hello everyone, and welcome back to the McGill International Review. Vivian Wong is a China correspondent for the New York Times, and she writes a lot about how the actions of the Chinese government affect the daily lives of its citizens. I've had her on in the past to talk a little bit about the more wide-ranging and wide-reaching effects that the Chinese government has had, whether it be through the curtailing of freedoms in Hong Kong or the way that zero COVID had had a negative effect on the lives of Chinese citizens. But today I want to zoom in a little bit and talk about a slightly more micro scale issue, which is the decline in student exchanges between the US and China. I think that the, the decline in student exchange programs between the US and China in some ways serves as a useful barometer for the ways that the tensions between the US and China have changed over the past few years. Over the past several years, the US has taken a turn in this foreign policy to be a lot more interventionist against China. One example of this would be like funding of semiconductors in the CHIPS Act to combat China's rise when it comes to technological prowess. And I'll have to be upfront and admit that I support a lot of the US's foreign policy decisions with regards to China. I do think that the Chinese government has made a lot of really terrible um, decisions with regards to its own people that does warrant that approach. But I guess one thing that makes this interview really interesting is it sort of adds another layer um, when it comes to like trying to understand the dynamic between the US and China. When it comes to the US's interventionist streak against China, what are, what are the upsides? What are the downsides? How effective are certain measures? Is there a potential for collateral damage um, when it comes to like potential consequences when it comes to what the US is trying to accomplish? And I think a lot of it is very interesting. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. All right. Um, Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. It's always a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, so I want to obviously talk about the piece that you wrote about U.S.-China exchange students. Um, but throughout the article, you talk a lot about the stories that you've heard from many different people and the attitudes that many people expressed when you were talking to them and like doing reporting. So when it comes to all the different stories you've heard regarding U.S.-China exchange students, and some of what that represents with regards to the tension between the two countries. Which ones stood out to you the most? Like, what specific attitudes do you find, like, the most surprised by? I don't know if I would say surprised, but I think that one thing that definitely left an impression on me is whether it was talking to students who were already studying in the U.S., you know, had a visa, and then have had that revoked under certain US government proclamations, or students who are still in China and really hoping to go to the US. What's really notable from these conversations is there is still a tremendous well of goodwill and sort of optimism and hope in what the US can be and what it can represent in terms of opportunities for upward mobility for a new life, and of course, educationally. Um, I think that's, you know, Maybe that should sound obvious, but I think that in this current geopolitical climate, a lot of people, both in China and in the U.S., 
might think that you know, Chinese public sentiment is turning against the U.S. And I think certainly in some corners it is, but it's really important to be reminded that there are still a lot of ordinary Chinese people away from sort of all of the political rhetoric who really just want a better life, right? They don't care about the sort of high-level entanglements of geopolitics. And part of what I wanted to convey with this story is that you know, it would really be a shame for the U.S. to sort of squander that goodwill um, and and contribute to the negative tide of public opinion when there are these people who really, you know, just want to to have a good life and come to the U.S. and learn about it. Do you think it's possible that maybe certain aspects of the U.S., when it comes to that goodwill, do you think they're either not sufficiently identifying it or do you think that they don't care? Or do you think there's some other cause? That's a good question. I think that there's probably a little bit of both of those things that you identified. I mean, certainly on a political level, I think that politicians who are looking to score points know that anti-China sentiment is popular on a bipartisan level. It's sort of an easy way to show that you're, quote unquote, defending American interests. And so you know, with that kind of big picture demonization, it's easy to not think about the ordinary people or people on an individual level. Um, and then it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because when that becomes the dominant narrative, then, um, you know, ordinary Americans or even people in the political sphere then might not be aware that there are still people in China who are curious about the U.S. Uh, because so much of the the story that goes around is about the segment of Chinese society that is becoming more nationalistic. And again, I'm not denying that that segment exists. I'm just, you know, I, I think that it's important to remember that I mean, Chinese, Chinese society is huge and diverse, right? And and so that's not representative of everyone. Yeah. Do you, Well, do you think some of the problems might here might be compounded by like the the difficulties in trying to find like robust and accurate data about what the like the median Chinese citizen might think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of a broader information availability problem, certainly. So as you said, you know, polling, independent polling in China is basically non-existent. Um, if you want to try to get a sense of what Chinese people are talking about on Chinese social media, of course, you're largely going to see anti-American sentiment because of how social media is censored. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very hard, certainly, for those voices, those sort of more middle of the road or more, you know, one might say reasonable voices to surface. Um, and, you know, that's even assuming that, you know, somebody's even reading Chinese language social media or Chinese language media, which of course is difficult given the language barrier. Um, at the same time, you know, as, as much as the U.S. government is erecting all of these obstacles to mutual understanding, of course, the Chinese government is also doing the same. It is feeding its citizens a lot of negative propaganda about the U.S. Um, you know, there was a lot of sort of negative messaging about the dangers of going abroad, not just to the U.S., but of, you know, leaving the embrace of the motherland during COVID that I think sort of continues now. Uh, so it, it's, on, it's on both sides. The whole thing about like the, like the dangers of leaving the motherland that like still exists now, is that like an intentional part of the Chinese government's messaging, or is it just like inert, like basically cultural inertia, where like you imprinted that onto people's minds and you can't really get rid of it anymore? 
I think it is intentional messaging. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's a continuation of the COVID era messaging. And during COVID, that messaging was really important because it was a justification for the incredibly strict pandemic restrictions. It was saying, you know, we need to maintain this level of control because we're protecting you. It's for your own good. Um, but in a broader sense, you know, even now that COVID restrictions have been lifted, there has just been a broader inward turn among the Chinese government's messaging in recent years, especially under Xi Jinping, um, this idea that we should stop looking to to the global community and especially to the West, right, for inspiration. We should stop using that as sort of a metric of success. And we should really be looking here in China for examples of excellence and superiority. Um, and, and, you know, whenever I talk about this, of course, I'm always careful to specify that on one level, it is absolutely great for you know, Chinese people and the Chinese government to be promoting cultural confidence, as Xi Jinping likes to call it, and this idea that, you know, I mean, in the past, I think many people would agree that the degree to which Chinese people thought that anything from the West was better was excessive. Um, but then, of course, there's a flip side of it where it, it becomes nationalism. And I think that we are seeing that occur. Yeah, and I do think it is generally important, like for basically any country to have a sense of strong cultural confidence in itself. But you know, the like the whole thing that you mentioned earlier about how the US is essentially squandering a lot of the goodwill that it has, like, I've heard, like, for example, when it comes to immigration, that like the US is essentially like giving up on like its biggest free lunch opportunity that it has. Like in this specific context, for example, when it comes to like, like China, Chinese exchange students, do you think this is what the Chinese government wants? Or do you think that, like, that doesn't really play a role. This being the sort of diminishment of, of Chinese students going to the U.S.? Yeah. You know, I, I think that it's not, there's not a simple answer to that. Um, I think the Chinese government for many years now has certainly been promoting the idea that people who go to the West to study should come back to China afterwards and, you know, then promote the development of China. Um, they call them returnees. Um, you know, I think that there hasn't been explicit messaging from the Chinese government saying don't go abroad to study anymore. I think there still is a recognition that, you know, there are great educational opportunities abroad and it is to China's benefit, especially, you know, when it comes to fields like STEM and, and high tech um, for Chinese students to be learning from the best wherever that is. Um, but again, that runs concurrently with this idea that also here in China, we have the best and also, you know, maybe go to these other countries, learn the best and come back to help promote China. So it, it's not a straightforward, you know, don't go to the US and study anymore, but it gets all entangled with the bigger geopolitical tensions. Yeah, and when it comes to the bigger geopolitical tensions, I think that's part of the reason why I find your piece on this really fascinating. So I'm going to quote your article for a little bit. Quote, for nearly the past two decades, Chinese students have made up the largest share of international students in the U.S. And for Americans, until the coronavirus pandemic, China was the most popular destination for study abroad outside of Western Europe, according to an annual State Department funded survey. Students have been an anchor in the two countries' relations, even when political or economic ties have soured. Um, but so I guess if the wind is starting to blow in like a sort of a different direction nowadays, I guess the question is, to what extent do you think 
the decline in U.S. student exchanges serves as, or has been in the past, a useful barometer for understanding the tensions between China and the U.S.? I think it is a useful barometer, um, even as in that section that you just read, I, I think it also has been sort of ballast or something reliable in the relationship, uh, even as tensions soured again, as I wrote. Um, so Dennis Simon, one of the professors I quoted in my piece, who used to be an administrator at Duke Quinshan here in China, made the point that, you know, these sort of student and scholarly exchanges used to be something that you could pretty stably rely on, you know, no matter what what else is going on in the bilateral relationship. Uh, but now, rather than being that ballast, they're actually another source of tension, um, especially when you're looking at sort of STEM exchanges, right, and, and how there's a lot of arguing going back and forth about whether or not Chinese students should be allowed to go to the U.S., Chinese scholars should be allowed to go to the U.S. and learn about things like semiconductors. And so I think that in this particular moment, especially um, the fact that even this sort of mainstay of the relationship is not only no longer ballast necessarily, but is in fact another source of tension really tells us a lot about where relations between the two countries are. Yeah. So like, do you think that, do you think that this is a sign that we've like, when it comes to the tensions between the U.S. and China, they've sort of reached a boiling point that they didn't before, even when like there were some sours of like sour grapes in the ties. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to sort of draw direct apples to apples comparison uh, because, you know, at other points that would be considered lows in U.S.-China relations, for example, after uh, Tiananmen, there just weren't the same mass of Chinese students in the U.S. and vice versa, right? So it's hard to, to exactly tell. Um, but I think an interesting point of comparison would be during the peak of the Cold War, there was a lot of rhetoric and actually tangible effort on the part of the US government to say, we should still be maintaining cultural and scholarly exchanges with the Soviet Union, uh, because there was a recognition actually, strategically, that this was a form of soft power and a way to sort of spread, you know, supposedly the, the benefits or the merits of American society and democratic society to the USSR. Um, and now I think that you are not hearing as much of that. I mean, certainly, as I said in my piece, the U.S. ambassador to China, other officials have talked about the importance of student relations and student exchanges. Um, but I think on a policy level, you're not seeing as much active, um, sort of as many active steps towards that goal. So do you think that the U.S. should do more in terms of soft power to China in a way that might be analogous to the way that like they treated the Soviet Union during the Cold War? Yeah, I think that goes back to, you know, how we open this conversation. And certainly I'm not making prescriptions yeah. to U.S. policymakers. But again, there is this amount of goodwill towards the U.S. that, um, you know, may become increasingly rare as this relationship develops. And so to squander that is um, certainly potentially wasteful. And and even beyond the idea of goodwill, I think from a sort of national security and strategic perspective, um, if you want to have American policymakers deciding how to handle China, one would think that you would want those people to actually understand China and have experience in China. And therefore, having studied here seems like a great way to get that. 
um, which is why the Defense Department directive that I mentioned in my story, which has stopped active duty cadets from participating in programs like the Schwartzman Scholars Program in Beijing was really notable to me because, again, these are people who probably, you know, will be making Defense Department policy on China in the future. And yet the Defense Department is saying, well, don't go actually get that on the ground experience. Um, I think that that is, you know, certainly potentially setting up the U.S. to have some gaps in its policymaking. Do you think like do you think there's like a there's a there's like a fine balance that even if it might be difficult deserves to be drawn like for the US in terms of like maybe it's like I do think that the US has a little bit of a moral imperative to go hard on the Chinese government for some of like the um I would argue human rights violations that they have done in the past but do you think do you think there's like a sort of a tension between that and sort of doing it in a way that sort of promotes a lack of understanding of Chinese culture? Yes, I mean, the Chinese, the, the U.S. government itself talks about this balance, not only in the field of academic exchanges, but sort of in its China policy in general, right? The, the phrase that they like to toss around is sort of um, small yard, tall fence, like the idea that the, the areas that we're going to be really strict about and really restrictive in um, are going to be small and limited, for example, semiconductors and sort of other high-tech development. And when it comes to those areas, we're going to be really, really strict. But when it comes to other areas, we want to maintain ties with China. So certainly, you know, American officials are talking about that balance. Um, but I think that, again, it's sort of a question of how, how small that yard actually is. Um, you know, in rhetoric versus in reality, and whether there is sort of collateral damage being caused in other areas that the U.S. is not necessarily uh, intending to be so restrictive about. Yeah. Um, so I guess this this piece you wrote serves as like a great sort of analysis about some of the potential collateral damage that could be um, a product of U.S. foreign policy towards China. Um, but so there's this one quote from someone. So you talked to someone that previously hoped to work in the U.S. after graduating, but now is unsure. So I'm going to quote her, Miss Chen, who said, quote, I've always looked up to the United States. It provides the best opportunities for highly skilled engineers. It's not as bright as I thought. I think it's very divided, unquote. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the story of Xi Chun and like, how her um, her views on the U.S. sort of soured a little bit because of her own personal experience. Sure. So um, she went. She attended Beihang University in Beijing as an undergraduate, which um, is a, a top university here in China, but also is one of the universities likely on the U.S. government's blacklist in terms of students who are not allowed to pursue graduate study in the U.S. Um, but uh, Xi Chen went to the U.S. for to pursue her Ph.D. before that proclamation was enacted under Trump. Um, and she then returned to China for the first time in many years, basically, since going to the U.S. to study in the first place earlier this year. Um, and when she tried to apply for a new visa to return to the U.S., was denied basically because of her background at Beihang University. And so as a result, she was stranded halfway around the world from, from her belongings, from her car, uh, from her research lab, 
And her only option has been to stay at her parents' home and try to finish her PhD from her childhood bedroom, is what she told me. Um, you know, she she no longer has access to her lab. She's been trying to borrow uh, basically research equipment from a local professor in China. So obviously this has been extremely, extremely difficult for her and has really made her question whether she would want to go back to the U.S. Um, she told me that, you know, she's thinking about Europe or, or other places in the world, that basically she would feel more welcome. So do you think when it comes to like the large amount of goodwill that the U.S. has when it comes to Chinese citizens that the U.S. doesn't necessarily know about, um, do you think that like, do you think that if the U.S. stays in its current course and that goodwill is just going to fade away without people knowing that it was there. I think that's certainly a possibility, right? I mean, you can come to the U.S. with all of the sort of goodwill in the world. Uh, but if you are then sort of as this as Ms. Chen was kicked out, um, stranded away from your belongings, unable to go back to your research. I mean, I think that it is very understandable um, and, and perhaps, you know, only inevitable that your opinion on the U.S. sours. Um, and, and, you know, all these other young students I met who maybe want to go to the U.S. but are fearful of having a visa denied or having it, you know, even worse revoked once they're already there. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's only natural that that sort of uncertainty would shade your opinion. There's this one quote from this prominent like media mogul and writer that you talked to that I want, I want to quote because I thought it was kind of interesting. Quote, the Chinese have flocked to America all these years because they feel that that particular freedom and tolerance will allow them to flourish. The problem is that somehow Americans have figured out to win this, to win this battle in their mind against China, they need to be authoritarian also. So there are two strands of this that I want to pull on. But so the first one would be that we've talked a little bit about how the U.S. has a lot of like goodwill that it doesn't necessarily know that it's is there. And as a result, they have the potential to squander it a lot. Um, so I guess my question from that would be like, do you th when it comes to like the potential squandering of goodwill, do you think that has the potential to negatively affect like the living standards of Chinese students who decide, who still decide that they want to go to the U.S. Absolutely. I think that, you know, even from, for example, the students I met at this college fair who were thinking about studying in the U.S., there was a lot of fear about discrimination, about racism. Um, you know, some people that we talked to said, well, you know, I think it'll be okay as long as I go to the U.S., but, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try to stick to other Chinese students and um, people who I know that, you know, will be a little bit more like me and won't discriminate against me. So I think that there is a very deep and, and real fear about what the deteriorating bilateral relationship will mean in, in ordinary people's everyday lives. Yeah. And then the second strain I want to pull on is that quote that um, you mentioned about how like, Americans have figured out that to win this battle in their mind against China, they need to be authoritarian also. Do you think, like, so what are some ways that you think that um, the U.S. might be learning the wrong lessons from the Chinese government's authoritarianism? So what Hong Wong was talking about in that quote that you read is, you know, the contrast between this idea 
which may have been reality, may have been not, but certainly was an idea in many Chinese people's minds for a long time about America as this beacon on a hill, right? This place of freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of, you know, to, to be whoever you are. Um, and what she's worried about now, what I think many Chinese are worried about now, is the idea that, you know, Chinese who go to the U.S. will have to, for example, um, be careful about maybe how they talk about their homeland or even, you know, even, even if they are critical of some parts of Chinese policy, for example, um, if they say anything good about China, there's a fear that they'll be labeled as pro-communist or sort of anti-Darcy. Um, and, and just the fact of having to be fearful because of your own identity as a Chinese person, I think, is what Ms. Hong was saying is, is sort of antithetical to this idealized vision of the United States. Yeah. So I guess uh, to close out, what are some, I guess I'm going to uh, frame this in two ways. So what are some policies that the U.S. government can do to promote things like freedom of expression and making people feel less fearful of the sort of like opinions that they might have? And then beyond policies, what are some like cultural norms that you would recommend that they might spread to help with this issue as well? Yeah, on a, on a policy level, um, I think that, you know, what a lot of people in China, but also educators in the U.S. have called for is the revocation of the proclamation against certain Chinese students coming to pursue graduate study in the United States. Um, so far from, from what American officials have said, there is no plan to reconsider that proclamation. Again, it's part of their small yard high fence strategy and they think that it's crucial to national security um, but that is one recommendation that many people have made uh, and on a sort of cultural or non-policy level i think it's just about the rhetoric and the political climate i mean again so much anti-china rhetoric has become such an easy win in politicians eyes um, and, and that's bipartisan whether it was you know trump calling the coronavirus a china virus early on or, you know, even under the current Biden administration, you still see Democrats talking about the China threat. Um, and I think that that really, again, as we said earlier in this conversation, feeds a broader climate of hostility and fear towards China that, again, it, you know, has its roots certainly in um, policies and problems coming from the Chinese government, but is also trickling down to ordinary Chinese people. Vivian Wong, thank you so much for taking the time to come back onto the podcast. It was a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.